Well, good morning. How are we doing? I'm so happy to be with you this morning uh, at the Hobart Portage campus. We are blessed to have joined in on the series of Ecclesiastes that we started as a church in all of our locations. We're going through the same text each and every week, and it's been just a um, blessing for us so far. Uh, open up to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 12 is where we're going to be this morning. I say it's been a blessing to us so far, and some of you have been thoroughly depressed by the book of Ecclesiastes. And you're like, blessing, ah, jury's still out on that. Uh, some of you have found the honesty of Ecclesiastes, be, Ecclesiastes to be something that's a little bit, maybe too honest. Uh, it was 1851 when Herman Melville wrote his famous book, Moby Dick. And he said in that, about Ecclesiastes, he said, the truest of all books is Solomon's. And Ecclesiastes is the fine-hammered steel of woe. And for many of us, we're like, yeah, that's exactly right. I didn't know it, but that's true. Like, like uh, we're, we're hunting the big, elusive whale of happiness and meaning in our lives only to find that it can't be found and that it's always uh, one step ahead of us. We don't have answers. And last week, we uh, were ushered to consider the emptiness of human wisdom, and we were even brought to the point of considering death. Can I be honest with you guys today? I mean, Ecclesiastes is pretty honest. I know church, sometimes we put on a face. We're not always honest. But can I be honest with you today? I don't like talking about death. Anybody with me? You're like, wait, we're going to talk about death today? Honey, go get the kids. I'll be in the car five minutes. Um, but that's exactly where we're brought to by Solomon today in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 12. And we're going to consider the life that we live and the death that we die. And because this can be an incredibly heavy topic, I want to have just a little bit of lighthearted fun with this for a moment. Can we have a little lighthearted fun about death for a second? Is that okay? It's, uh, it's, I don't know, this could be like culturally taboo, but let's just try it out. Um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out your phone or a pen and paper or a pen in your palm. And uh, we're just going to do a little over-under, uh, not betting, but just a little over-under here and just see what happens. Uh, take out a, a pen or your phone, and I just want you to write down a number, the number at which if you reached this age, life would be good. Like if you died at X years old, like, it would be perfect. Like, that would be the age that I, like, you do this when you're, when you're little, right? You're like, how old do you want to be when you die? And you're like, this. so just write down whatever that number is. This is a total dream, total, like, you're in control. What is that number? What is that number? Go ahead and write it down. Maybe you show it to your friend next to you. You're like, this is, this is where I'm at. I don't know how, how, how big your number is, but mine's here. And uh, here's the deal. In the sporting world, um, I don't condone this. I don't participate in this. I think this is the biggest waste of time and money and resources. I think God's word actually has a lot to say against this. But in the sporting world, there's this thing called the over-under. It's like used to place bets on games. It's a number that's established to be like, this is what should happen in this game. Oftentimes, you should take the bears for the under. Following me on that? And uh, so the over-under is, you could do this with every, like a lot of things in life. In the Super Bowl, people do an over-under on how long the singer is going to sing the national anthem. And I heard this year is something like a minute 42 seconds, which is a long, stinking time to sing the national anthem, isn't it? 
And uh, we do things like place bets on how many commercials will happen before the kickoff. And I figured, you know, you can do an over-under on anything, so why not do it on your life? And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. The title of this message is literally, The Over-Under on Your Life. Um, Psalms chapter 90 verse 10 says that the days of man are but 70 years. So I figure the Bible gives us the over-under right there. That's the number. Let's just do a little show of hands. Who's taking the over for their life? Like, if you could reach over 70 years old, if the number that you wrote down is over 70 years old, you're like, that's me. Let's see this show of hands right there. (laughs) Right, right, right. Because we all pick the over in life, right? We all want to live that long, long life. If I'm thinking about this, I'd be like, 90 years old. If Dan Jacobson, no, this is a hypothetical situation where I'm in control. 100 years old. If I get a hundred, no, 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 that's too little. 105, right? If I got a hundred, wouldn't you think if I had 106? 106 years old, I'm really, 106 and a half. 106 and a half. If I get to 106 and a half, so let's see, that's April 20th of 2092. I can die a happy man at 106 and a half years old. We all take the over when it comes to life. We all think that I'm gonna have this day that's guaranteed to me. I'm gonna try and get, but, but listen, Seldom in life, actually never in life, and you all just proved it, do we take the under. Actually, there are some people in life that take the under. They're called undertakers. (laughs) That's so cheesy. I'm sorry. But their sobering wisdom of these experts in their field would tell us that in a room this size, more of us than we think should bet the under and not the over when it comes to our life. Friends, the book of Ecclesiastes is going to push us on this issue to, 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 to really make us wrestle with the reality that death is close. If we're going to study this book and come out of it the other side better off, we need to take heed of this reality that you are only prepared to live when you're prepared to die. It was uh, Montaigne, the philosopher, who wrote, philosophy is no other thing than for a man to prepare himself to death. And Ecclesiastes is going to have us grapple with and wrestle with the frailty and the brevity of life. And it's to this topic that Solomon turns this portion of Ecclesiastes as he's on his quest to solve the meaning of life. And so we jump into his musings here in verse 12. Do you have verse 12 in front of you? Great, let's jump into this together. Here's what Solomon, the preacher, says about death. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only that which has already been done. Then I saw that there's more gain... Everyone say more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain, say it again, in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. This is smoke. This is what you have when the bubble bursts. 
Solomon here revisits the topic of wisdom and folly on his quest to find meaning in life. Last weekend, we looked at this in his first go-around at wisdom and folly. Solomon, undoubtedly the most wisest man in the world, he had people coming from all over the world to come here and sit under his wisdom. It was God-given wisdom, as a matter of fact. And as such, he thought and started on his quest to understand life in the most logical place that he could think of to look. Uh, Do you guys have a place in your house for keys? Yeah? Yeah? My wife and I do. Some of you need to get this because you're always looking for your keys. Uh, But I have got a a little hook right by my door, and I'm amazed at how many times I forget to put my keys back on the on the hook. And um, I'll go and I'll need to leave the house, and I'll go look at the and they're gone. And what happens? I freak out. I start yelling at my wife, going, "Honey, what did you do with my keys?" And she's like, "I didn't even drive your car." And I'm yelling at my two-year-old who can't even reach the hook. And I'm looking in the refrigerator, in the freezer. I'm looking at all these irrational places. But every once in a while, I'll go back to the hook as if I know they're supposed to be there. Like, I know the keys are supposed to I've looked there time and time again. But I, I know there's, and this is exactly what Solomon's doing with the meaning of life. He says, I know that the purpose and the meaning of life is supposed to be found in my wisdom. I know it's, and he, he keeps coming around and trying this again. And I think, guys, this is so, so helpful for us. For those of us in the room who um, are on this quest to get answers about life and ha- have yet to come to the conclusions that you feel you need, I appreciate how diligent Solomon is not to shrink away from the different difficult questions of life. And I think that there's an example here for us, and I just want to encourage those of you who have been seeking God that like Solomon, you might return time and time again to try and find the answers you're looking for. Solomon doesn't settle for simple solutions or throwaway slogans. He's not buying the secret things are the Lord as uh, some cop out for him. And because we're not advertised as having the most wisdom in the world, it's encouraging for us to know that while Solomon grappled with this question, so too should you, friend, grapple with this question. There's a guy uh, who wrote me an email this past weekend from the Holbert Portage campus. I was so encouraged by this email. He has he, uh, been coming for a, a month, works for a police department in the area. One of his friends invited him, and he said, Dan, I just have been enjoying coming and hearing the Bible make sense to me. And he said, a couple, a couple months ago, my son asked me the question, Dad, who made God? And in a moment of honesty, this guy said, uh, I don't know, buddy, but we're going to find out. And in his email, he wrote to me, he said, it started me on this journey to find the answers of who made God, of all the, all the things that I've been afraid to ask for such a long time. And throughout his investigative journey, it brought him to Bethel Church, but more importantly, it brought him to the word of God. And as he's been seeking the questions of life, seeking answers for the questions of life, he's been finding God's wisdom speaking into the process. And here we see Solomon saying, I know that God's wisdom has something to say about this. And so I'm going to come back again. I'm going to turn back again to wisdom. And so here we are today. And in returning to wisdom and folly, Solomon is brought to this devastating realization that no matter who you are, Death claims both the wise and the fool. Which means that in the over, under, on your life, no matter when, no matter how wise you've been, 
no matter how foolishly you've acted, there is a certain day coming where you will breathe out your last and you will cease to be and death will claim you for itself. I wanted you to write down a number in front of you at the beginning of this message because I wanted you to realize that even in this dream that we have of immortality, even in this dream of a long life, it's still a dream. And there's still reality. That even our dreams have finality to them. I venture to say no one was smart enough to write the infinity sign on their paper. Although maybe you were. We all realize that life ends. And if philosophy's goal is to improve life for all, this means that some are going to, like Solomon, invest themselves into making life better for those around them and joining local politics and trying to help in education and trying to better our society and putting our energy and our efforts and our power and using our forces for good rather than for evil. This was Solomon's quest. This is what he was doing with his life. He was making his kingdom great. And yet, just like he was trying to make it great, there are people who are enemies of the state. And in Solomon's kingdom, there were people who were working against him. And there were even people who, by their laziness, were not contributing. They were being fools. And here's Solomon's realization. No matter, because death comes to both. There's a story about Alexander the Great that so well makes this point. Uh, one day, Alexander was, uh, after a battle, he was standing in a field, and he, he noticed his, his friend, uh, Diogenes, uh, was standing looking at a pile of bones. And so Alexander did what you do when your friend is looking at a pile of bones. He walks over to him and says, what are you doing? And Diogenes pointedly replied, I'm searching for the bones of your father, Philip but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Friends, we all are mortal. We all have that day that's coming where life will end. And despite all of this, Solomon, I think, offers us a glimmer of hope for our life here on this earth. He still realizes that it is far better to be wise than to be a fool. Though wisdom cannot solve the problem of death, it has a legitimate, albeit limited, use. Notice back in the text that he says that I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. And in the over-under of your life, if I can tweak the analogy from one of betting to one of value, I wonder, might it be that we are still to value wisdom over immorality and folly? Solomon notes that there's more gain in wisdom, like light is of greater value than darkness. I'm sure you've had that moment when you've tripped over something that's been in your room for decades in the dark. You're like, how did that bed get there? How did I stub my toe? And and, and in the light, of course, it's plainly seen. The pitfalls are clearly avoided. And this is Solomon's point about wisdom. He says, wisdom doesn't just make us able to see the things that we should avoid. It gives us an ability to, to actually visualize them. Um, Phil Riken puts it this way very clearly. He says, the value of wisdom is not simply that it gives light. It gives vision, not just illumination. And I think so many of us who are asking this mega question of life of what's the purpose of my life? What's the meaning 
in my life? Why am I here? Is there a right way to go? So many have tried to answer that question by doing the thing they know they ought not to do, by acting in immorality. You've tried by madness and folly to answer the question only to find yourself trapped in more madness and folly. The cadence of death is still marching on, coming closer and closer, and we're living lives, wasting away in addictions, wasting away in stubborn rebellion, wasting away in unforgiveness, wasting away on the run from our home, wasting away in apathetic laziness. We ask the question, what does it matter? Death still comes. Yes, you can bet on that. In the over-under of your life, you can bet that your life will end. However, wisdom wins the over in terms of value. It is of more importance. It is a noble cause, is what Solomon says. My grandfather uh, is an author and has written many books on the Bible. And uh, one of the things that he says about Ecclesiastes I thought was really helpful here. He says, the wise man sees that death is coming and lives accordingly, while the fool walks in darkness and is caught unprepared. The thing about wisdom that Solomon wants us to understand that while it is legitimate and limited, it allows us to be prepared for the end. It's the fool who is trapped in his addictions who is surprised at his death. It's the one who is left his life to squander it away and not live for anything that comes to the end of his days and says, oops. Let's keep reading in verse 16. Someone's saying, I can hear them saying, please keep reading. Verse 16. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that the days to come all will have been long forgotten. And how the wise dies just like the fool. If death claims both the wise and the foolish, here we see that death forgets your accomplishments. That death forgets your accomplishments. There is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. And this hurts us. The issue of death cuts deep to our souls. Do you remember the days when you'd go outside in your backyard and run around and jump from the trees and pretend you could fly and that life was never-ending and that you were Superman? You remember those days? We have in us this desire for immortality. We have in us this, this, this craving to think that life could go on forever. And yet we see here in Solomon that immortality has been our quest ever since the day we traded life for death and crunched down on the apple that the devil enticed us with. And if we think that death is unavoidable, then everything that we have is useless. And everything in our lives is meaningless. This is the thinking of the existentialists. John Paul Sartre, he says, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. So some of us, we just seek to go on in immortality through our legacy. We think that we can just work 
really hard and build a brand and make the, 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 the game-winning shot that will live in infamy. And they'll have a statue built for us before we die. And, and if only I can make sure that my legacy is, is proven and tough and, and tried and true, then I will live in infamy. I might die, but my legacy can live on. And so we pour ourselves into our work. We pour ourselves into our accomplishments. And if we're lucky the statue will go up of us while we're still alive. I can think of numerous examples about this in our society. I think the probably quickest and the saddest is the story of Joe Paterno. You know Joe Paterno, Joe Pa, the um, late famous head football coach at Penn State, the winningest coach in NCAA history. In 2001, uh, Joe Paterno was built a statue for himself. Uh, He didn't build it for himself, it was built for him and at the State College of Pennsylvania in honor of him. Uh, it's a glorious bronze seven-foot statue. It weighs 900 pounds, which I did the math. That's like six of me. And uh, he's got his football players in the back. This is a dude here. You're like, I want to go on the field with this guy, right? He's got his finger. Like, this is, this is a legacy right here. Uh, there's a statue or, or a plaque next to the statue that reads this. These are the words of Joe Paterno. They ask me what I'd like to have written about me when I'm gone. I hope they write I made Penn State a better place, not just that I was a good football coach. We all know the story, the tragic, sad, horrific story of what happens. The statue remains for 10 years until uh, Jerry Sandusky is charged on insidious counts of child abuse. In the wake of the news, Joe Paterno offers his resignation is denied and he's fired. Um, Sadly, two months later, cancer takes his life. And just six months from the moment that Joe Paterno dies, Penn State takes this statue down, clears the block, and plants trees. Now, that's an extreme, compressed example of this reality in our life. But if you were to consider the billions of people who have lived before us, the amount of names that we actually know are a fraction of a fraction or a fraction of 1%. And Solomon's wisdom here is this, that in death, our, our accomplishments are forgotten. And our quest for meaning and significance is often considered in light of our legacy and accomplishments as if that was the way to eternal glory but there's a futility then in death. If our accomplishments are forgotten in death, then our accomplishments are futile. Um, Woody Allen, I think, hits the nail on the head, and I don't say that very often, but I do hear. He said this. He says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. And we're like, yes, and amen, Woody Allen. See, death claims both the wise and the fool, and it forgets your accomplishments. And then this in verse 17, look with me in verse 17. You still have it in front of you? Good. He says, so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
I suppose it's been said, and maybe you've heard this before, that in death, you can't take it with you. Yeah, you can't take it with you. You've heard that before? Yeah, my family growing up, I don't know why my parents had this slogan, but they used to say, he who dies with the most toys wins. You've heard that too. Interesting. I have no idea why my parents said that. We had no toys. Like, we, we didn't. And uh, we obviously knew that you could be buried with your putter, but you ain't playing golf. And you could be uh, buried with your wedding ring, or you could be buried with your whatever was important to you, your jackhammer, whatever. But the things of this life here on earth are of earth. And Solomon says so clearly here three times that life under the sun is one of toil and of grief and of striving. And the solemn reminder that Solomon gives us about death is this. You can write this down. That death robs your rewards. In death, it robs your rewards of life. First it claims your life, and then it forgets your accomplishment, and then it robs you of the reward that you worked and you toiled and you sacrificed mightily for. And if we had an over-under on your life, I wonder what's the percentage that you're striving for, thinking maybe if I work hard enough, maybe if I accomplish enough, maybe if I can derive some meaning and satisfaction out of my job or what I do or how I serve or these things here on earth, maybe then my life will add up. Maybe then it'll be okay. And Solomon says, under the sun, your rewards are rewards. They're foolishness. The man who has built an empire still dies and cannot enjoy the blessing of his labor. The woman who nurtures a fruitful garden is no longer benefited by the fruit of her labor. Death snatches our ownership of our rewards. We would all agree that God created man and woman in such a way that our hands should be put to the plow, so to speak, wouldn't we? Like, we'd agree that God created us for work. Genesis 2, chapter 15 actually says that the Lord God took man and placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. There is inherently built into God's good creation a reward for our toil, a satisfaction of our purpose. And after the fall of man, work becomes a crisis in life where we're always chasing the carrot that's dangling at the end of the stick while running on the treadmill of life. And sometimes, isn't this true? Sometimes we're able to like get the carrot. Like sometimes I actually feel a sense of satisfaction in what I do. Case in point, uh, last year my wife and I moved to Valparaiso and we bought a fixer-upper. And I fancied myself to be a younger, hipper Chip Gaines, which my wife tells me I'm more like JoJo, so I don't know what that means. But uh, we had a, a master suite that really needed some repair. It was fixer-upper. And so we took it down to the studs. We cleared this thing out, and I slaved for weeks. My wife would tell you years, but it was weeks, just working hard, coming home at night after, after the job was done and getting to work, getting, getting dirty, pulling off things, building things up, making it look really nice. And I remember, I remember after weeks of working and slaving in my master bedroom and my master bathroom at my home, I remember the last stroke of paint that I had to put on the trim. I remember cleaning that space and I remember sitting down in the middle of an empty room by myself for 15 minutes looking around at all that my hands had done, at all that I had accomplished. I spoke 
into the room and I said, it's good. <laughs> I looked around at what I'd done and I was like, it's finished. Like, this is it. This is the Imago Day living out in me. And the reality is, if I die in that home, I'm the only one that has a reward for my toil. I have a son who I would love to give the house to, you know, as an inheritance. But guys, he was two months old when I built that room. Like, that's not a reward for him. That's just a room. And if I die in this house and my son inherits the room, you know what he's going to do? He's going to rip it up. He's going to look at me and be like, Dad, subway tile? Really? What is that, like 2015? Come on. And hardwood floor? No, no, no. We don't do that anymore. We use uh, grass. I don't know what they're going to use in the future. <laughs> Everything's going green. And the point is this. Death takes the rewards and the satisfaction of our toil from us. Which is a very depressing thought. Because so many of us derive our meaning and our significance from what we do. And I wonder if it's ever occurred to us in Genesis chapter 2 that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to keep it. That was what they were there to do. But that's not what they were there for. That was never their purpose. It was just a preoccupation that God had given them. They were always there for someone else. And let's keep reading as we move on here in verses 20 and 21. Solomon says here, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. We're all like, yes, we're despairing too. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. Not only does death claim both the wise and the foolish, not only does death forget our accomplishments, not only does death rob us of the rewards of satisfaction of our toil. This is the last thing that Solomon teaches us about death here. It's that death redistributes your wealth. Death redistributes your wealth. In some weird way, death is like the ultimate socialist. Like you work and you work and you work and you invest and you build and you accumulate and you earn and then you die and it goes to everybody who didn't work or earn or accumulate it. Uh, Proverbs, one book ahead of us, tells us that a, a good person leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You know that, right? But I think Solomon is penning these words and he's crying, Foul! That can't be. That's, that's not good. And listen, if you are a millennial like myself, um, one of the knocks on us is that we, we go through life and we just act as if we deserve everything and never have to work for it. Well, well hold on, hold on. <laughs> I teed you up so good for that. And I'm impressed by Ecclesiastes. What Solomon would call that evil. 
Like not, not good, but straight up evil. And we desire, don't we, that the things that we would build in this life would remain. We, we desire that our kids would be wise with what we have. And I think of Solomon's story. I, I think of his son who goes on to lose 10 twelfths of his dad's kingdom. I think of his son who decides to overburden and tax the people for his own gain and he ruins everything. The reality about our inheritances that we leave or is that they seldom go to what we think they should go towards. We could talk about this for hours, especially with people who are over the age of 30. Um, but in death, there is a redistribution of our wealth. What we leave behind is left behind. And Solomon says here in verse 12, he says, what will the man do who comes after the king? Verse 18, he says, I must leave it all to the one who comes after me, and he will be master for all which I toiled. Verse 21, he says, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill to the highest degree is going to leave that for someone who did nothing. It's been said from this stage before, uh, illustrated Um, how our inheritances are easily squandered. We've shared the story of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Cornelius Vanderbilt built this massive empire in the turn of the century and left his kids with $100 million. And um, less than 100 years after uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, passed away, they gathered up all the descendants, the direct descendants of the Vanderbilt family. One of them built the Biltmore Mansion. Just one of the descendants of Cornelius Vanderbilt used his inheritance money to build the Biltmore Mansion. That's how much money they had. And um, in 1972, not one of them had over a million dollars. Death takes all that we've worked for here on life. And under the sun, it gives it to someone else. And look at the conclusion with me of what Solomon says, verses 22 to 23, as we close out Ecclesiastes. He says, For what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work of vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And Solomon hates life. Its days are full of sorrow and his work is pointless and his wealth is not secure. If I could summarize this whole entire passage in just three words, I would say this. I would say that death induces despair. The thought of death in our life often brings us to this despairing, useless, what's the point place. Um, Voltaire was another philosopher. You're just getting your fill of philosophers today. He once told a close friend this exact statement. He said, I hate life. And yet I'm afraid to die. And how familiar is that thought for us? That idea that this is not good, but that's no better. And I think this is the reason that Ecclesiastes is the most honest of the books in the Bible. Under the sun, this is not good. Under the sun, my wisdom is insufficient. Under the sun, my work is meaningless. Under the sun, my wealth is just ash. Ash. 
And I think that's the key. While the odds of death, the over-under on your life is that you will die, it does not have to be so. I think if we look at another over-under that is at play in this passage, it becomes a key for us by which we can uh, navigate and maneuver out of the despair of death and into the purpose and the meaning that God wants for us in our lives. We see that our greatest purpose and our greatest joy and our greatest hope and our greatest life is still yet to come. It's what happens when we take our eyes and we look over the sun and not simply under the sun. It's the over-under that provides a way out of this despair that's induced by death. And too many of us are just looking down on the ground of our lives, looking at the mess and the mire and the insignificance and the toil and the, the frustration and going, why? And it's because you just, you just gotta do this. You just gotta... Look up. I believe Paul, when he penned the words of Colossians chapter 3, was hinting at the echoes of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Paul writes in the few, few verses of Colossians 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Say that out loud. Above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are not on things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen? There is a real over-under on your life, one that requires us to derive meaning and purpose and significance from the things in life that are above. Friends, here's the reality of what Paul is arguing is that Christ has died. He died the futile death that we deserve to die. But Christ is alive. Christ has been raised in resurrection power. Christ is no longer in the empty tomb because the tomb is empty. If you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, where death ruled over us under the sun. We see that above the sun, Christ's death and resurrection has power and influence to change us and transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That in Christ's raising power, he reverses the effects of death under the sun. And so watch this. In Christ, we have our life. That's the first thing I want you to write down. I actually have eight points today, not just four, okay? So stick with me. This is point five. Christ is our life. Paul so clearly says that Christ is our life, which means our earthly lives are lived in alignment with Christ's life and his teaching. And since Christ is our life, we no longer have to hate life, but we can love life. I think the, the song that we sang earlier about the fairest Lord Jesus, it has that line in it that says, he makes the woeful heart to sing. 
And Christ is our life because he has turned us from woe. He has turned our sorrows into dancing. Jesus prayed the night that he was betrayed in in John chapter 17, verse three. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and and Jesus Christ, the one you have sent. To know Jesus is to know life. The next verse in John 17, 4, Jesus prays this. He says, I glorified you here on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And friends, here's the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. He came and he lived and he lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live up to. And he died a sacrificial death that you and I were not able to die. And he rose again to newness of life and resurrection power, which you and I were not able to have until he did that. And friends, while death forgets our accomplishments, the death of Jesus Christ is the greatest accomplishment that has ever stood at all times in any place, anywhere in history. And it stands yesterday and it stands today and it will stand forever because Christ's work is done and it stands secure. And in Christ, that's a great thing to applaud. In Christ, in Christ, we have our lasting accomplishment. And if we're hidden in the one who has eternal victory over death, we have this eternal, lasting, resurrection life. My friends, immortality is found only in the person of Jesus. He is our lasting accomplishment because his work stands forever. How true are the words of Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And not only is here our accomplishment, Christ is our reward. while, While death robs us of our rewards, Christ's life becomes our reward to be found hidden in him. I've been arguing that the meaning and significance that we chase in our work and our wealth is fleeting because it's taken away, it's robbed at death. Yet when we consider and live life from a viewpoint of things above, we realize that our lives are hidden in Christ. To be hidden in Christ, it literally means to be encrypted. Encrypto is the Greek word. It's like what you do when you send a secure message or you deposit that check with your phone. You encrypt it and you send it over so it's secure and nobody can take it away from you. That in Christ, we are encrypted. We are safe and secure, unable to be snatched away from him. And our rewards are secure in Christ. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 20. He said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And finally, there's one last reversal of life and death under the sun to life above the sun. When we realize that Christ is our inheritance, If death redistributes our wealth, we find in Christ we have an undeserved yet amazing inheritance waiting for us. Under the sun, we realize that what we have is nothing. But in the death of Christ, he has enabled us to become heirs of the glorious riches of God. He is our inheritance. Paul argues this in Colossians 3, verse 4, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The reward and the wealth of our faith is invested in the glory of God. 
not in the goods of this life. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3, these are verses that we were in a year ago. But I want to remind you of what they say. It says, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So friends, this is the gospel, that you might be raised from the futility of death under the sun. The commonality of us in this life is that we are subject to death but that you might believe in Jesus Christ who has overcome death in his death, burial, and resurrection, that you would embrace him by faith and set your heart and your hope firmly in heaven. Might we consider new life that lifts us and secures us and remembers us and rewards us in Christ's accomplishments. Death no longer has to induce despair. The life of Christ induces and prevails and provides a glorious hope for our lives. And I want you today to change your view on death so that you can live. To realize that death is not the end. It is only the beginning. Because Christ's death has paved the way for us to have new life. It's no longer a matter of an over-under odds of when you'll die. It's a matter of whether you'll settle for death under the sun or for life with God above.